I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Our guest today is Andrea Cortello. She's an ecologist with Poisson Consulting. Today we're talking about wolverines. Peter, one of my favorite animals that I've never seen in the wild, that I've always wanted to, the wolverine. Have you seen one? No, and my guess is I probably never will. Yeah. Because these guys are absolutely insane creatures in a great way. In a great, in a great yes. way. Yes, yeah. Uh, hard to come by, rare. Right. That's right. that's what I, I that's what I feel I know about them, but I don't really know a whole lot. I bet yeah. about wolverines. We're gonna rare and tough as all get out. Well, they're cool looking animals, that's yep. for sure. We're gonna learn a whole lot more about wolverines today, and and where to find them, and maybe how you can be helpful in yeah. making sure their population is sustained. But before we get there, Peter, I think you've got some nature news. I totally do. You know, Leaf, everybody knows about poison dart frogs. Absolutely. But what about poisonous birds? Poisonous birds. Poisonous birds, yeah. There are 11 species of poisonous birds. We just discovered two more called right. you know, the Regent Whistler and Rufus-Naped Bellbird. And they're both found in New Guinea. So don't eat those. Don't eat those, okay. right, right. And the great thing about these two birds, they are really like the golden poison frog of South and Central America. How so? Well, they get their toxicity from beetles that they eat. and the, the oh, from the beetles? From the beetles, gotcha. yep, yep. And the birds also carry the same type of toxin in their skin and feathers, but trachotoxin. Okay. But trachotoxin holds, in a sense, how it works, it, it, it holds the cell's sodium gates open. Right. So normally we've got the potassium-sodium doors across our cell membranes that open, close, open, close. Well, they keep the sodium gates open, and th it results in fibrillation, cardiac arrest, and even death. A lot of bad things. A lot of bad things. And so the, the golden poison frog, of course, is the bad baddie. These guys aren't quite as toxic as the the, right. the golden frog. And I quite. assume this is a protection, right? And so yeah, predators well, actually, won't eat them. They don't they don't with this research, they don't quite know yet if it is an actual protection. You know, with the golden poison frog, yes, and the other poison dart frogs, it is a protection, you know, they've got that coloration, the warning coloration that says, Hey, look, we're brightly colored, we're poisonous, don't eat us. We're not quite, they're not quite certain if this is protection or it could be something where with the beetles that these birds were eating, that was the most available food. Oh, so it's incidental. And it's incidental. Gotcha. It could have been something otherwise. And the kind of the cool part about this is even though it's the same toxin, um, the birds' mutations within their cells that regulate the sodium channels. And so that mutation reduces how long those channels are open. It's actually in a different location than the golden poison frogs. So okay. a very similar type of mutation in a different area leading to the same effect, that they can eat these beetles, these insects. And it doesn't insects, affect them. And it doesn't affect them, huh. yeah. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Do we have any local birds that you can't eat? Well, I read this, and we'll, we'll be surprised. It is the ruffed grouse. Ruffed grouse. Right. It's not as 
poisonous as uh, these other birds. And people do eat rough grasses, but there are some that get sick off of it, kind of like a, a food poisoning case. Not everyone is affected by their toxicity. <laughs> Good to know. If you're having that for breakfast, right. stop now. Right. right. <laughs> or eat small amounts to see if you get sick. And if you do get sick, then don't eat it. Then stop eating it. Right. Good advice. Good yeah. advice. Hey, it's trivia time. Uh, today we're talking about wolverines. And so today's question is, what is a typical day's hike for a wolverine? You will be impressed when you hear this number. When we come back from the break, Andrea Cortello joins us to talk all about wolverines. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, we're back from the break. We want to welcome our guest today. It's Andrea Cortello. She's an ecologist with Poisson Consulting. Welcome to Nature of Idaho. Thank you. So uh, tell us about yourself and what you do and a little bit about how you got into wolverines. Well, I did my master's on large carnivores, uh, wolves and cougars, in, in Banff National Park in Canada. But I was going to school in Idaho, at University of Idaho. And, and I, I really enjoyed Idaho. And I really enjoyed ski mountaineering. And I really enjoyed paddling here and the climbing. One thing I noticed was that an animal that I would often run into when I was up on a glacier or way high up in the Alpine, you, know, you don't really run into wolves and cougars there, but you do see wolverine tracks. And I would run into wolverine tracks in the most amazing places. And it was, it was always a wonder to me what they were doing up there because <laughs> there's nothing to eat. Right. There's no, there's rock and ice and snow. And so, so they really got me curious. And when I had an opportunity to work on a project looking at connectivity for Wolverine in the Canadian Mountain National Parks, I jumped on it and hauled beaver carcasses around the park on skis and nailed them to trees and wrapped the trees with barbed wire to get hair for DNA. And about that time, I also um, moved from where I was living in Banff to Nelson, British Columbia, which is right on the border with Idaho, almost. And and I and there was a Wolverine project run by um, Idaho Fish and Game, uh, Michael Lucid and Lacey Robinson, who were doing a project in Idaho at the time. And then there was a project up north in Banff. And I realized that if I started a Wolverine project 
in the Nelson area, I could effectively link these two projects and doing the same similar methods. And we could actually study wolverines at the scale that these, this animal requires. This animal is really low density. There's about one wolverine for every 10 grizzly bears, you know, about, so in, in this area, it's about two per thousand square kilometers. And, and to study them, you really need big areas to get any kind of an idea of population or, or sample size or connectivity. And so me and my friend, Doris Hausleitner, we decided to put this together and apply for funding and, and try and make it happen. And it really sort of happened on a shoestring and then went up from there. And lately we've been more focused on looking at where wolverine denning areas are because wolverine wolverine are an amazing animal and they're so they're so adapted to winter they have these big snowshoe feet they got built-in crampons they have special they have hair which is unique for its ability to shed frost so up north wolverine are trapped in the arctic for their fur to line parkas because your face won't end up within a encased in ice when the temperature block drops below minus 40 degrees Celsius. And so they're, um, they're really adapted to winter and they're, and they're impacted by climate change. Let's paint a picture of what, what a wolverine looks like. I, so I've seen photos of them. I have a general sense of how big they are. How would you, how do you describe a wolverine to someone who's never seen one before? Lots of people don't see them. And, and so, and so when you do see them, it's like, what is that? And what they, they're about 30 pounds. They're about the size of a small dog or of, of a medium sized dog. But what they look like is a small bear, a small bear, but it doesn't have a short tail. It kind of has a medium length tail and it's bushy. And they have a, a blonde, they usually have a blonde lateral stripe that runs down their sides and kind of around their back and then back up the other side. So the, when you see them, or at least that's been always been my overwhelming impression. It's like, is that a bear cub? No, no, that's not a bear cub. It's got a tail. Yeah. And so they're in the weasel family? They're in the weasel family, yep. So they got the, uh, maybe a bit more of a pointed snout to them than, yeah. than say yeah. a bear would. Yeah, and they're, and they're a little bit, you know, sort of longer and skinnier than a bear, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, they don't I, they don't look they're not totally long they're they're more chunky than than your what you picture as a weasel right they're the largest uh terrestrial member of the weasel family yeah, yeah. i always kind of if this helps our, our listeners i always kind of think of a wolverine when you you take a, a, a an american badger and smash a fisher together and they're kind of like the components of a fisher and a badger all put together yeah. but made into one very large and formidable critter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when, we, when we're looking at, you mentioned that these are cold loving animals and they're really adapted to cold. So we're assuming that they don't live in the easiest places for us humans to access. So where, when you're doing your research, where do you have to go to try to find a Wolverine? Yeah. Wolverine, um, when you're talking about where they live, in the sort of southern end of the, their distribution, so the southern part of Canada and the and the contiguous U.S. sort of the borders with Canada, not 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 Alaska, they really live in subalpine areas, 
so subalpine and alpine zones they really follow the mountain chains down and live in these areas that have um snowpack deep snowpacks that last uh well into spring so into may and and part of the reason why they live in these areas is because that's where they choose to den they choose to den in their dens are these tunnels in deep snow that um and often they're under um big talus boulders like car-sized talus boulders or under like huge logs or avalanche debris like avalanche debris from like trees and stuff like that that are all stacked up and so they often have some sort of structure in them but they're these deep holes in the snow and they're um usually right at tree line or close to tree line and um and the holes in the snow you know they give thermal protection for the kits and they also they're they're in these areas that no other predators are around because wolves will dig up kits and eat them right and the moms have to leave the kits the kits are quite helpless and for a long time and they have to forage and so they'll go off and forage and leave their kits for four hours or six hours and so they're kind of like paranoid parents they have to leave their kids somewhere really secure where no one's going to find them. And for a wolverine, that's right up in tree line where no other animal bothers to go because it's too much effort walking through all that snow. <laughs> so I have to ask you this. You are studying wolverines. How do you find them? Well, what we've been doing is we've been trying to study wolverines non-invasively. So we haven't been putting radio collars out there because it's quite expensive for one um and wolverines have thick necks their necks are about the size of their heads so they don't even the radio collars don't even stay on very well right because they got these big necks so we've been trying to do it using sign wolverine sign tracks and uh we fly helicopter surveys um during the denning season to try and find tracks but we also use citizen science. So we ask people that are skiing or on trap lines or, you know, maybe they're um, on their snow machine to report when they see wolverine tracks to us. And areas with concentrations of wolverine tracks between February and May are usually indicative of a denning area because wolverine don't really stay in one spot for long. They have really large home ranges, you know, five to fifteen hundred square kilometers, or um, five hundred to fifteen hundred square kilometers, and they and they wander around these these huge home ranges. But um, but if they're sticking around in one spot during the denning season, it's probably because there's a den there. And so we're asking people out on the ground to help us be our eyes on the ground and and report wolverine tracks and sightings to us. So I'm, you're, you're describing an animal that seems uh, adapted to living in pretty difficult environments, and they have these large home ranges that they're, they're traversing, uh, at least when they're not denning. How do they feed themselves? I, I, I can imagine there's a, a lot of calories that need to go into this animal in order to have this lifestyle, but at the same time, they're living in an environment I don't think as highly productive. So something must give here. How are they getting their food? What do they eat? Yeah, they're, they're facultative scavengers. So they, they do a lot of scavenging, but they also but they also prey on animals that are, so they do a lot of scavenging. And 
Um, they also prey on animals that are weakened in weaker, weakened condition. So, you know, there's been documented cases where a wolverine has taken down a moose by itself, Jeez. right? But that moose probably wasn't doing very well to begin with, right? Right. But they'll jump on its head and they'll savage it and until it gets so exhausted from fighting, it just, and then they'll walk away and then the moose will be so exhausted, it'll just lie down and die. But often they're scavenging kills from other predators like wolves or cougars or um, animals that have died in avalanches and they can eat you know in the winter sometimes they they'll just be they'll they'll follow a wolf pack and clean up the bones and so i've felt wolverine carcasses where all they had in their stomach was fragments of bones and they chomp they have these huge jaws and they chomp down the bones and 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 uh, eat the marrow basically but they they also they will also eat uh, small uh, rodents and marmots. They eat a lot of marmots and rabbits and animals like that as well. And I think those kind of just sort of tied them over um, between the the major um, the major kills that they scavenge. But they also have a really interesting strategy to, to sort of tie them through this whole thing is that they cache their food. So you can imagine a wolverine coming on um, a goat that's been killed by an avalanche. It can't eat it all at once, and it doesn't. It takes it, and it caches this food up in cold areas, in, in persistent snowbanks or under talus, that, you know, where there's, like, icy bits under talus. And so they'll, they have these, like, these alpine fridges, basically, <laughs> that they've created that keep them... To keep them fed between the times that they find fresh kills and that's that's a real part of their strategy and and another reason that they're cold adapted is they they, they actually depend on on this this cold to you know keep their food supply more even so it's they live in some hostile environments but food wise they don't have a whole lot of com- competition up there and exactly. So yeah. even though food is sparse, they have to work hard for it, but they're not really having to deal with bears or cougars or wolves as much as say if they were down lower in the valleys and such. So Yeah, and they do they certainly I mean their their home ranges are so huge and they certainly do go down in the in valleys and and they do interact with wolves and cougars and you know, prey on their kills and or feed on their kills. I think they need the high alpine and subalpine areas as as refuge, right? So you go out, you like try and stand down a grizzly bear on a kill, you try and get a little bit to eat, take it up into the mountains, and then okay, you know. <laughs> I'm done carrying this up right. the mountain. Put it in the fridge for later. <laughs> put, right. put it in the fridge for next week. Yeah, leftovers. And uh, largely solitary animals when they're doing this travel? Uh, they're, they're, they're largely solitary, but what's been interesting is, is new research coming out that where they're not quite as solitary as we thought they were. Researchers have found them where males have gone around and even provided provisions to females in dens. I don't think they do it regularly, but it's happened. Um, or um, when the kits grow up and they're sort of sub-adults, they're sort of almost ready to go out on their own, um, they'll follow their mom and dad around for up to a year and sort of really learn how to be a wolverine by 
by um, following mom and dad. Isn't that cool? Nature always messes things up, you know? Well, they're supposed to be solitary, but guess what? We found <laughs> something else. Well, this this bird is supposed to be monogamous or this primate's supposed to be. Well, you know, maybe that's not the case. You know, that's why we have to continue with the research. We're always finding out new cool stuff. Nature doesn't have yeah. any rules. Indeed. Well, so so I, I presume part of the... the purpose of study is to understand how these how these animals are able to migrate but are there changes i guess in the environment that are having an effect on on these animals yeah well wolverine are impacted by climate change for sure and predicted the amount of predicted wolverine habitat in the u.s south of canada is is expected to decline quite precipitously in the next 80 years. And Wolverine, but even now, Wolverine are impacted by recreation. What we're finding is that human use, human disturbance can really affect habitat use. And especially for denning females, uh, even a low, low amount of human use can cause the females to abandon her den. She takes her kids with her, but she abandons her den and she'll go somewhere else. And this really uh, makes the kits vulnerable, vulnerable to predation. And it also energetically, uh, females will provision, they'll make food caches around their, their den. And so, so if they move somewhere else, that can have energetic consequences for the female as well. Is their migration affected as by, for instance, prey herds like elk or caribou, deer, etc.? If those migration patterns get changed, does the wolverines migration or uh... well, wolverine wolverine don't really migrate? Mm -hmm. They have sort of they they have home ranges that they move around, but I wouldn't really call it a a migration so much. Is it affected by the large care? It's certainly going to be affected by the decline and loss of caribou in the southern part of the Car Woodland Caribou Range, for sure. I'm not sure how it relates. I couldn't really answer that question, actually, with any conviction about how it relates to other large ungulate herds. That was a great question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Again, these these are animals that are living in, in in difficult environments and are in low population numbers, and probably by by necessity, right? Because these are sort of low productivity regions. Um, are their reproductive numbers sustainable? Uh, is is there an issue here? Uh, obviously, with climate change and the the degree to which snowy climates are maybe diminishing uh, over space and in duration during the season. I imagine that's putting a stress on on the ranges that these animals can can live in and succeed in. Yeah, I imagine that's that's probably true. The focus of um, my research lately has been on identifying, you know, where where these denning areas are. That um, you know, because when you when you try and if you look at wolverine habitat, it's so huge that you can't really. It's hard to manage for all of it because they're so densely populated. But if, if, if we manage for uh, denning habitat, then those are much smaller areas that, you know, you'd have much more success in being able to do something about. Um, and so 
one of the things we're trying to do is um, identify dens because there's been hardly like a handful, a couple handfuls of dens identified in, in North America. And, and the females are really um, sensitive around these denning areas, but, but they also, the denning areas are often reused from one year to the next and not necessarily the same dens because they'll move their, they'll move which rock they're going underneath or which deadfall piece of deadfall they're going underneath. But the, the general area is often reused by the same female from year to year and often by subsequent females who um, come into that territory after that fem- the first female is gone. They'll, they'll often use the exact same areas. And so, so these areas are, are of real conservation interest. And because they're, um, because they're wolverine are sensitive to human disturbance, um, we're really trying to sort of ask people to pay attention to when they see wolverine tracks. And if they see lots of wolverine tracks, that mean a wolverine was in this area for a lo- has been in this area for a long time, it could be a denning area and to try and avoid those areas. Just leave them alone, let them, let them den from February to May and, and get their kids out of there. And then, um, and then they're less sensitive. Are their tracks relatively easy to distinguish from other animals? They're about the same size as a wolf or cougar tracks, but you can tell them from a wolf or a cougar track because they have five toes and a wolf or a cougar only has four. <clears throat> and they travel in a really distinctive, uh, either a double bounding gait, so two tracks together, bound, 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 or a three pattern loping gait, kind of like a, a slow gallop where there'll be like a diagonal line of three tracks and then a space and then another diagonal line of three hmm. tracks and then a space and then another diagonal tracks. And they're really, really distinctive. So, and I know at the end, we'll kind of direct people to a, a website. If someone does find tracks, what what can they do? How can they, in a sense, get a hold of you or other folks who are working with Wolverine conservation and research? Well, we have a site to um, gather public observations called Wolverine Watch. And in that site, um, there's pictures of what Wolverine tracks look like because you can mistake them for other tracks. And, and there's also a report, there's a page for reporting observations. And it's really great um, because we're, we're hoping to use, or we're using these observations to try and find important denning areas for Wolverines. We can also use these observations to try and identify places where Wolverine cross the road. So places that might be good for um, highway mitigations like underpasses or overpasses. And we're also finding interesting information about Wolverine behaviors, you know, how close do people get before Wolverine react? Um, you know, is it 50 meters? Is it 200 meters? You know, how how much or how do they react? Do they react aggressively? Do they run away? And so it's a really it's become a really great resource of information, and it's, it's some it's a way that um, you know every people just general public can really contribute to Wolverine research. How have you found uh, that people's reactions or impressions of wolverines are in North America? Is it a positive reaction to this animal? 
I'd say in Western Canada, people are really excited to see them. They're such an icon of wilderness and they're really, you know, people have heard the stories of, you know, trappers cabins getting raided by Wolverine and Wolverine like chasing off grizzly bears from their kills, you know, and Wolverine climbing mountains in, you know, an eighth of the time that a person would climb them. And so I think in, in Western Canada, there's real, you know, they're rightly, they're admired for their, their tenacity and their ability to survive in these really, really harsh environments. That's, it's impressive. I'm, I'm still looking forward to the day I actually see one in the wild. I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hopeful. Gotta get, I guess I, guess I have to keep going outside, right? <laughs> going outside, I think... I think the best way to see them is to hang out on glaciers. There you go. <laughs> okay. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> because because glaciers sort of act like Wolverine highways, right? They're they're <laughs> they're high up connectivity areas that join. Oh sure. Watersheds, right? And lots of denning and so, habitats. And and it's close. And yeah, exactly. The tree line is is often denning habitat, and so yeah. So get up get up high there in the mountains and keep your eyes open. Excellent. Well. Good advice. Now, uh, can you help us with our trivia question, which maybe somewhat relates to my desire and maybe the impossibility of me ever catching one? What is the typical day's hike for a wolverine? Well, wolverine can travel up to 30 or 40 kilometers in a day and, and even farther if they're motivated. So, so keeping up to a wolverine is hard work. Yeah, that's 25 miles for our American listeners. That's that's a that's a a long day's hike. <laughs> so, Leaf, when you find the tracks, yeah. you have to decide whether you're going to follow them or not. <laughs> Remember, 30 to 40 kilometers a day. Uh, get tired just thinking of it. <laughs> right. All right, Andrew, we really want to thank you for joining us today. And again, for listeners who want to learn more about wolverines, and, you know, if you just happen to find some tracks, you know, Please go to wolverinewatch.org to really, you know, help out this research. This is what citizen science is all about. So, yeah, everyone, go to Wolverine Watch and have some fun. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Andrea. You're welcome. Thank you. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at KISU Studios in Pocatello at Idaho State University with editing and production done by Ricky Colapietro. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org or from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noid-kisu at isu.edu.